The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello and welcome to Killing It The Crimecast. I'm your host Lux. And I just have a couple of housekeeping bits. Nope, just one housekeeping bit. And it is a massive thank you to David Saunders for your Patreon pledge. Uh, Just a reminder, if you want ad-free content and you want extra bonus episodes, that came out funny, (laughs) extra bonus episodes, um, you can subscribe to Patreon for as little as $1 a month. You can get all of that. So think about it. Today's case comes from a true crime magazine who I don't really want to, I didn't use it as a source, it's just I read an article in it. Article's a bit of a stretch here. The magazine was very much glorifying crimes and making everything super ooky spooky and not really that factual. So I got all of my facts from the internet, but this article did lead me to the title cold case cards. You will see why that's relevant later if you don't already. But we'll start with a murder. Oh, content warnings. There will be murder, there will be sexual assault, there will be rape and perhaps mental illness. Kind of. That's about it. Oh, dismemberment and stuff. We're in for a fun ride, y'all. So on the 30th of July, 2003, 33-year-old Nilsa Arismendi was reported missing in Wethersfield, Connecticut. Her boyfriend Angel, Ace Sanchez, uh, had reported her missing to Nilsa's son, who then went on to tell Nilsa's mother and sister, who then contacted the police. Nilsa hadn't shown up to the motel where she and Angel were living, and she hadn't been seen by anyone in over a week. The motel where they were living was a little bit seedy, and there were a lot of drug addicts who lived there, including these two. Turns out that Nilsa was introduced to heroin at 18. She met Angel at a meth clinic where they were both trying to kick the habit. Um, but she and Angel had been childhood sweethearts. So her meeting Angel at the clinic was kind of a reunion. The clinic wasn't successful for them, though. Unfortunately, Angel gave in to addiction first and then Nilsa also fell back into her addiction. The documentarians, uh, which, by the way, the documentary that I used for this will be in the show notes. Uh, So the documentarians mentioned that addicts often turn to sex work, but they didn't definitively say that Nilsa herself had engaged in sex work. However, due to her addiction, Nilsa had to put her children in the care of relatives. Police sent out an APB, they put up missing persons posters, and they put out a national appeal. And that means that Nilsa's disappearance was put on the FBI missing persons database. Shortly after Nilsa went missing, her boyfriend Angel was arrested for the possession of narcotics. But still, three weeks after her disappearance, Angel hadn't heard from her. But because he was in in prison, there wasn't much he could do about it. So he asked the prison chaplain to communicate his concerns to someone in law enforcement. The chaplain had Angel write a letter to the Hartford Police Department and then posted that letter for him. 
Detectives interviewed Nils's family members to find out if Angel himself could have been involved in Nils's disappearance. They were reluctant to incriminate an Angel, the family that is, but they also couldn't rule out any suspicion. But then when the police interviewed Angel, they came to the conclusion that his concern was genuine and he wasn't involved. He told police that he and Nilsa had been doing drugs and then walked back towards the motel. As they were doing so, they saw a van in a grocery store parking lot and Nilsa said, I'm going to go say hi to Devon. Devon had partied with Nilsa before and would give her rides in exchange for a bit of gas money. Um, so she was familiar with him. Angel saw her get into the van with him and so he just went back to the motel and waited for her. But she never came back. On the night that Nilsa went missing, a patrol car had spotted a suspicious van, and when he ran the plates, he found that it was registered to a Dory Holcomb. There were lots of traffic violations on this van, and it turns out that Dory had a boyfriend, William Devon Howell. Devon, getting in the van with Devon, a little bit of a link here. Howell himself had hundreds of traffic violations and drug-related offences. He was incarcerated throughout his 20s, and his sentences kept getting longer. Although he was originally from Virginia, he moved to Connecticut, where he worked odd jobs and mowed lawns. So when investigators visited Dory to ask her questions about Howell, under the guise of him being a suspect in a case involving the theft of lawn care equipment, they saw the van in the driveway, and it said, Lawn Care, Call Devin, on the side of it. But Dory still said that, no, it's my van. I'm the only one who drives it regularly. No one else drives it. And if this wasn't suspicious enough, the cops saw a male figure in the kitchen, uh, but he quickly disappeared. <laughs> so he's being super sneaky and so is Dory. She threatened to call the police to report the police that were investigating at her house. So they called up first and they said, we're here on official police business if Dory Holcomb calls up. She's just being fussy like we're not breaking any rules basically but they couldn't enter the house um they didn't have enough probable cause for an arrest or a search warrant or anything so they backed off and after this after this house call howell and the van just disappeared turns out that he had a history of domestic abuse towards dory and she had actually tried to call the police on one of these occasions and howell had ripped the phone cord and punched her he was arrested for this but was out on bond and then he'd failed to report to his probation meeting because, you know, he'd fled. So with this probation, um, oh gosh, what's it called when you do something that you're not supposed to do? When he, when he broke him, when he did the bad boy, bad boy breaking rules? Violation. <laughs> Based on this probation violation, police issued a warrant for his arrest. But he was actually arrested first in North Carolina for a traffic violation. North Carolina is about 800 miles away from where he was living with Dory Holcomb. He had also hidden the van in a field in North Carolina. So the police drove down, extradited him and found the van. So when they processed the van, they found some blood in it and they took samples from Angel, Howell and Nilsa's mum to find out whose blood it was. Obviously Nilsa's mum, they didn't have Nilsa there to take a blood sample from her so they were looking for a familial DNA match. Unfortunately, forensics took too long to get back to them about whose blood it was, and so they had to release Howell. Again, not enough probable cause. But in August of 2004, forensics did come back with a match, and it was a familial DNA match to Nils's mum. There was a 1 in 7,400 chance in the Hispanic population that the DNA found in the van belonged to Nilsa. 
With this information, police interviewed Howell's girlfriend, Dory, again, and this time she was honest with them, and she said that Howell was the only person who drove the van. It's now January of 2005, and they do a second search of the van. This time they pulled up the carpeting, and they found that a lot of the carpeting had been soaked with blood. The photo of the evidence is in this documentary that I'll be linking, and it is really gross. It's properly soaked and in some places the blood had even soaked into the wood panelling that was beneath the carpets. Also in the van they found hair root samples so clumps of hair with the roots still attached indicating that they'd been forcibly removed and they found a hammer with some blood on it. This is not promising stuff you guys. When they tested this hair DNA and the blood on the hammer DNA and the blood in the carpets DNA they found it was not all from Nilsa. It was from numerous people. But they couldn't find any matches in the DNA database. They had numerous people they knew were victims of this man, or at the very least victims of someone in this van, and they had no idea who it was. Howell at this point was in Virginia, and he was staying with a friend. When police showed up to arrest him, he attempted to escape, but he was apprehended and taken to Connecticut. Howell's friend, who was he was living with in Virginia, said that he had helped Howell clean up the van and get rid of the seats. He said that there were bloodstains everywhere and a weird smell. Why? Why would you? If your friend rocked up when you're living in a different state, they just rock up to your house out of the blue one day and they say, hey, mate, can you help me clean my van out? Yeah, at the bottom of these seats, they're soaked in blood. Can you take them and dispose of them and help me clean up the rest of the blood? Yeah, there is a weird smell. Huh, wonder what that is. Why would you do it? Call the fucking police, mate. I've got some very close friends, but there is no one I would do that for. In any case, Howell's now arrested, tried to escape, didn't get away. So he's back in Connecticut. And while he's awaiting trial there, he told a cellmate that he'd gotten into a fight with Nilsa and had punched her and thrown her out of the van. So the sort of, oh, she was alive when I last saw her. Also, the blood could have been from the punch. And that actually ended up being part of his defence, that the punch was what led to her blood being in the van. What's all the other blood then? Hmm? Just doesn't add up. So there's obviously a lot of evidence against this guy. And as a result, he took an Alford plea. And he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. For those of you who haven't heard of an Alford plea before, I'm going to do a brief summary of what it is. But I'm hoping to cover this case in a future episode the case of Henry Alford, which is what it, this gets its name from. Also, it's an Alford plea, not an Alfred plea, like I've thought it, it was for about three years now. I'm kind of disappointed in myself for not realising. So, this is what it is. It's essentially where the defendant admits that the prosecution has enough evidence to convict and essentially pleads no contest. The difference between an Alford plea and a no contest plea, however, is that the defendant who takes an Alford plea is asserting their innocence. They're saying, sure, you have enough to put me away, so I won't fight you on it because that'll just make my situation worse. But I didn't do it. And the origin of this plea, like I said, comes from Henry Alford. It was the 1970 case of North Carolina versus Alford. The defendant had been charged with first degree murder in 1963. He was facing the possibility of the death penalty if he, if he was found guilty. At the time in North Carolina, the death penalty was the default sentence if two conditions were met. The first being that the defendant pleaded not guilty, and the second being that the jury didn't recommend a life sentence. Henry Alford didn't want to plead not guilty 
because this would open him up to the possibility of the death penalty because this would satisfy one of the two conditions and he doesn't have any control over the second condition. That's completely up to the jury. But also, if he did plead guilty, then he'd be telling the whole world that he actually did do this murder when he's saying that he didn't. So he's in a bit of, of a conundrum here because he doesn't want to be put on the death penalty for saying not guilty, but he also doesn't want to admit guilt. Hence the Alfred plea. You're saying, all right, I get that you could find me guilty, so I'm not going to say that I'm not, but I'm also not going to say that I am. It's sort of a weird middle ground. It's actually quite a cool case if you look into it some more, which I shall do in the future. But back to the case at hand. Howell actually at one point tried to take back his Alfred plea. Uh, he said he was being forced into it. And then he said to the judge, quote, I offer my sincerest condolences. I know they feel I murdered their daughter. I didn't murder Nilsa, end quote. As we'll find out, that's a lot of bullshit. And taking back the Alfred plea didn't work, obviously. I don't have to explain why. And his sentence of 15 years still stood. But this isn't where the story ends. Because in August of 2007, a hunter found a skull and called the police. The site where he found the skull was a small wooded ravine behind a strip mall. Police used a ground-penetrating radar to search the area, as well as looking for disturbed soil, as in soil that had recently been dug up to bury a body. And they found three sets of skeletal remains. They did facial reconstruction on the skull that was found, and they, they publicised this image. And the brother of a missing woman named Diane Cusack came forward and said, that reconstruction looks like my sister. Like Nilsa, Diane had been missing from 2003, and at this point it's 2010. So Howell's been in prison for a couple of years now. The second body was only identified in 2013, and was Joyvelin Martinez, who also went missing in 2003. In September of 2014, so years have gone by at this point. Howell's still just chilling in jail for this one 15-year centre of Nilsa. September 2014. Third body is identified. Mary Jane Maynard. She was a counsellor for, for addicts, having previously been an addict herself, and she'd turned her life around. But after surgery for a herniated disc, she was given opiates and became addicted to heroin as a result. And... So there's a bit of a trend here. All of these bodies seem to be women and all of these bodies seem to be women who have taken drugs and women who took drugs who disappeared in 2003. This is where the title of the episode comes in. Now, this quote is taken directly from Wikipedia because I couldn't phrase it better myself and I'm lazy. Quote, during the 2003 invasion of Iraq by a United States-led coalition, the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency developed a set of playing cards to help troops identify the most wanted members of President Saddam Hussein's government. The cards were officially named the Personality Identification Playing Cards. As of 2018, all but six of the 52 most wanted have either been killed or captured. And this inspired a revolutionary way of getting snitches to snitch. And I was, I'm so impressed by this. So Florida did it first, I'm pretty sure, very shortly after the um, personality identification playing cards. But in 2010, the Connecticut Department of Correction, God, say that fast three times, and the Office of the Chief State Attorney's Cold Case Unit created a set of playing cards which featured 52 cold cases, one for each card. 
and these decks of cards were distributed among Connecticut inmates. The incredible thinking behind this initiative is that inmates are criminals, so they're likely to have connections to the outside crime world, which means that if they were in a gang, for example, they might be aware of unsolved crimes that their gang was involved in. Furthermore, cell confessions might provide new leads on the cases. With card games being a main source of entertainment in detention centres, it's brilliant to put these cases on decks of cards. They also made it so that these are the only playing cards that are available to inmates. And these 52 unsolved cases include homicides, missing persons, and unidentified remains. On each playing card, there are details of the case, a photo, and a free tip line that an inmate can call if they have any information. The cards also include a picture and a description of the victim, in case the inmate making the call recognise their face. In 2016, they were on their fourth edition of the cold case cards, as 20 cases had been solved. That is, arrests or convictions had occurred in 20 of the cases. So they kept refreshing the cards with new cases that were still cold. And between 2010 and 2016, 675 tips had resulted from the cards. In December of 2014, William Devon Howell was sharing a cell with quadruple killer Jonathan Mills. And while they were playing cards... Presumably these cards, because they're the only cards available in the prison system. He confessed to having killed Joyveline Martinez, who I know for a fact was on these playing cards. He said to Mills that he had raped and assaulted her in the back of his van and had strangled her to death. He said that he was in a rush when he threw the bodies down the ravine and didn't bury them. But he said that he had buried some others in the same area. Howell's cellmate was actually able to draw police a map of the area behind the strip mall and showed where they would find additional bodies. He said that Howell called this his garden. So police brought cadaver dogs to the area and they found 50 bones. They matched Joyvelin's hair, bones, blood and teeth. So Joyvelin had definitely been buried in this area, like Howell had told Mills that she was. They then found, in order... Melanie Ruth Camellini, Danny Lee Wistant, which is the name that is used in a bunch of articles, but her actual name was Janice Roberts. She was a transgender woman. There's a lot of dead naming, a lot of misgendering happening, and it's just not cool. So from now on, I will call her Janice. And Marilyn Gonzalez. Howell had admitted to a cellmate he sexually tortured Marilyn and had strangled her to death. He kept her body in his van for two weeks because it was too cold outside to bury her. He called her body Baby and slept next to it. Before he buried her body, he cut off her fingertips and took off her bottom jaw. And some reports say he did these things before he buried her body, as in while he slept next to her. So he removed her fingertips and her bottom jaw, tried to bury her, was unsuccessful because the ground was too cold, and then put her back in the van, dismembered in this way, and slept next to her, calling her Baby. He did live in the van at this point, so it might have been out of necessity but it's still awful. So in 2017, Howell is finally put on trial for these six murders. He's done seven in total, if you include Nilsa, but he's already been tried for her murder. So he's been put on trial for the other six. There was a period of six months in 2003 where all of these seven people went missing. So he was on a rampage, and who knows what, what would have happened if he hadn't been caught. A woman named Anne K. Howard wrote a book about Howell 
called His Garden, Conversations with a Serial Killer. And Howell told her that he would put the women down and he would call them all sorts of horrible things while he was torturing and murdering them um, for the purpose of dampening their self-esteem. And it's really yucky and I don't want to talk about it. So I'm going to let her do it and I'm just going to play the clip from the documentary. So here it is. He would tell me that during the commission of these crimes, he would call them despicable names. He would put them down. He would say such hateful things to them for the purpose of destroying any kind of self-esteem that they may have had. He would even ask them about instances of whether or not they were sexually molested as children. And for me, that was just piling on the trauma to not only sexually traumatize them in that present moment, but to evoke all of these painful memories because in fact many of his victims had been sexually molested as children. So to bring that to the surface and prey on that just seems even more monstrous than one can imagine. He also came up with the name The Sick Ripper and that's now one of one of the serial killer names that is attributed to him. Bearing in mind, he tried to take back his Alfred plea and say that he w he didn't murder Nelson and he was so sorry and he was sad about it, etc. And then he's doing things like calling a body baby and calling the burial site his garden and calling himself the sick ripper. He's just oh, another cute tidbit is he called his van the murder mobile. So he's a piece of shit. In conclusion, he did plead guilty uh, to these six murders. He didn't use an Alfred plea again, but he did apologize to the families and cried. And he said that he wasn't a monster, which, yeah, buddy, you are. He was sentenced to 360 years. And at this point, the death penalty was outlawed. Um, it had been outlawed in Connecticut in 2012. So if he'd been caught sooner, considering all of these murders happened in 2003, he could have been executed. I personally wish he had been caught sooner because A, justice for the family sooner um, and closure for them. And B, he wouldn't, he'd have been executed. So he wouldn't have been able to brag in prison like a fucking douche. Speaking of his bragging, he said to his cellmate, a monster inside me just came out. And that he also had plans to, quote, go, to cr go cross country and kill others, end quote. But then later on, when this woman is writing a book about him, he tells her that it's not like there was a monster that came out of him and it's not like it was an urge within him that he couldn't control. He told her that it was a choice that he repeatedly made. Every time he took a woman and tortured the woman and killed the woman, it was a choice. To make this case even more fucked up, there was a... $150,000 reward for information about Howell's murders before they knew that it was Howell who committed them. So this reward was put up by police for the, the three bodies that they initially found due to the hunter finding the skull. And this quadruple murderer, Jonathan Mills, the cellmate who Howell confessed to, he tried to claim that reward. Bearing in mind he's in prison for killing two children and two women. Like, he's a proper piece of shit. And I won't get into his case because that's a whole other thing. But my point is, there's apparently five different people who are all claiming that they're eligible for some of the money. It's disgusting. You are murderer. You gross. You get no money. 
that's all I have to say about that. Another tidbit about how disgusting Howell is as a human being is the authorities uncovered several tapes of him having bizarre sex with women. And um, one of the women who he murdered showed results of being sexually assaulted with a shock absorber. Nilsa's body was never found, but uh, he told his cellmate that he had buried some of her in Virginia. And cherry on the cake is because Howell's victims all used drugs, he told his cellmate that, quote, they should have all known they were going to die because of the lifestyle they were living, end quote. So according to him, they deserved to die. It was an inevitability that he was just hurrying along. No big deal. Bear in mind, in his 20s, he was arrested for drug-related offences. By his own logic, he should, be, he should die. So that's that disgusting tale, which um, I only researched because I wanted to find out more about these cold case cards. And I thought they were such a cool initiative and such a great way of getting inmates to open up about the things that they heard. Because obviously, if you've got a cellmate who's saying like, oh, yeah, I killed this girl and I buried her behind a mall. Ha ha ha, aren't I cool? You can just brush it off as, oh, maybe they're trying to intimidate me. But if you literally see a playing card with the description of the woman having been buried behind a strip mall, you're going to think maybe there's some truth to what this guy said and you're going to report it. Equally, if you're playing cards and you want to be braggadocious, you see a photo and you say, oh, that's a girl that I killed. And then obviously someone else is going to dob you in. I just think it's a really cool and interesting and innovative way. And best part, they're all self-funded. So the way they did it to start with was they used uh, money that had been seized from drug-related offences. So presumably drug dealers had like stacks of cash and they seized that as evidence. So they used some of that money to produce the first batch of the playing cards. And then after that, they sold them for like a dollar seventy. Through the profits of that, they were able to create the second batch and then the third batch. And so it's self-funding. It's just the coolest thing ever. So that is the case of the sick ripper, William Devin Howell, and the case of the cold case cards. Before I go, I will leave you on a happy note. I will leave you with uh, killing it. Someone who is killing it at something in their life. By the way, please do send these in if you're particularly proud of something you've done with your life or that one of your friends or family members has done. Please do tweet me at Killing It Crime. I'd love to include some of those tidbits. The person who's killing it this week is my friend Joe, who you may remember the forensic students from episodes way back. Not only did she graduate with a first class degree from her forensics and let me see if I can remember this correctly. Forensic Science and Criminal Investigation degree. Yes. Not only did she graduate with the first, but she also won an award for having the best dissertation in her year. So that's pretty awesome. And she's crushed it. And now she's working on getting a job with the Metropolitan Police in London. And she's doing some temp jobs with the county council in the meantime while they're doing her background checks and while she's getting her applications into the Met. So she is really following the dream. It's taken a while, but she's killing it at following the path to her dream job. And I'm super proud of her, Joe. You're the best. So if you want to follow me on Instagram, it's Killing It Crimecast. On Twitter, it's Killing It Crime. I've got a Facebook page, which I don't really use, but you can probably chat to other people on that and stuff. 
and you can email me at killingitcrimecast at gmail.com. Please don't forget about Patreon and also there's merch on Redbubble. So feel free to give me some money if you want. You don't have to. I'm cool. All right. Thanks so much for listening and I will speak to you next time.